We have some exciting news for tomorrow. I feel like we've been birthing this for a year now. I'm really excited for it to see the light of day. So this podcast has been leading up to Enough, the newsletter and website, which will be launching tomorrow. It's going to be a slow news approach to telling stories from around the world about the people and the brands who are solving environmental problems, providing alternative models to capitalism, and really continuation of telling the types of stories that we've been talking about on the podcast. And one other reason to check out the Enough website is because this is our last episode of season one. So for anyone who's been loving these conversations, the best way to continue it is to go over to the website and to continue reading about some of the incredible people and brands who might be making an appearance for season two on our podcast. So go to enough.media and you can sign up and make sure that we're coming at you through your ears and your inbox. It's basically this podcast, but just stories about people and the brands. And also a global look at those stories, because I think sometimes we're so U.S.-centric, not we, you and I, but just generally the U.S., that we miss important and interesting stories that are happening around the world, and particularly in this crazy news cycle where everything feels like it's just happening domestically. I feel like I'm missing out on really powerful stories that we don't get to see. What do you mean a crazy news cycle? Everything's <laughs> fine. Yeah, the world isn't burning. No, I, I, you know, one of the great things, and knock on wood, that Trump is actually going to be gone, it's the amount of mental space it's going to open up for people to think about other things, achieve other things, tell stories about other things, because he sucked up all the oxygen. And like this American-centric thing, I just have to apologize to all of our friends around the world because... I, I, they don't want to think about America anymore. Like it's taken up their headspace as well. Yeah. And I think being in quarantine too, there's just no escape from it. You know, traveling used to be a nice way to get away from the American news cycle. And now we're just mired in it nonstop. I used to love to be able to go somewhere else and be like, great. I don't have to think about everything America's doing wrong right now. I can talk about other things. And I just haven't had that break in such a long time. Missing that escape is resonating so much with me, especially because our next guest used to be my favorite trip of the year. Amy Novogratz, who is based in, in Utrecht in the Netherlands, started the first investment fund for sustainable aquaculture. And she travels the world looking at ways to solve the crisis of, of our oceans and, and the death of its ocean species. And she's doing it. And we have known Amy for so long, and I am so excited to be able to talk to her on this podcast. And we should mention that Amy was one of our first clients at number 29. She believed in us from the beginning, and I always will remember her for that. And when we first started working with her, when we were talking about aquaculture, that was still a term that I think a lot of people had no idea what it meant. I mean, it was in a very niche world that that resonated. And we've been able to really see over time how people are starting to pay attention because it means the future of our oceans. And if we're not taking action now, we're going to be in a really dire place in just a couple of decades. I'm Melody Serafino. And I'm Erin Always. And we're the co-founders of Number 29, a media relations agency that focuses on sustainability, design, and advancing social change. This is the Enough Podcast. This week, we know that we have more than enough resources to protect our ocean. 
and we've had enough destruction of the planet's incredible aquatic life. Amy is... I don't even know where to start because she believed in us before we had number 29 because we worked with her when she was the director of the TED Prize in 2010. And then two and a half years later, when we launched number 29, she was launching Aquaspark. And we have worked together truly from the start. Our companies have come up together. And she is hands down the most resilient human being that I have ever met. She has survived a brain tumor and the loss of her first child, and nothing has stopped her. She perseveres, and I wouldn't say she's she's not blindly optimistic. She's just like blindly fierce, and you can't hold her back. So she will make change. She's going to make sure that the oceans are protected, and we all have to invest in fish farming in a better way, as, as silly as that sounds, because our ocean, this treasure that we have is not going to be available to future generations. And we're projected to run out of fish from the ocean in the next 20 years, if you can wrap your mind around that. So Aquaspark is the first investment fund for sustainable fish farming. It was started eight years ago by Amy and her husband, Mike Bellings, who is equally phenomenal. And they look for companies that across every element of fish farming would be more sustainable. So for example, eliminating antibiotics completely because why would we want antibiotics in anything we eat? Clean water, making sure the feed is sustainable, making sure transport is sustainable, ensuring that there's no plastic in the fish because that's a thing now and very upsetting. So they look at people who are doing all of the aspects of either raising fish, transporting it, growing the fish, and even just some incredible food companies that are providing fish that we can all eat and order. I think the success of AquaSpark is so indicative of the important work that they're doing and really proving out their concept and thesis for why we need to protect the oceans. I mean, Amy was on the cover of Forbes last year, which is wild that we went from aquaculture being thought of as this sort of niche industry to making the cover of Forbes because of the impact that their investments have had on this industry. They've been incredibly successful in attracting over $150 million in investment from nearly 200 investors. Also, Amy's trajectory and her career is so fascinating. Uh, she started off in media in Washington and then became the director of the TED Prize, which ultimately was awarding $1 million to an individual with a world-changing idea. And in 2009, Dr. Sylvia Earle won the TED Prize for her work creating basically national parks for the ocean. She wanted to set up spaces that would become these protected areas in the way that we have parks on land. And I want to say that Dr. Earl is almost 80 years old and the most tireless of advocates. And I think that Amy has a lot of that indefatigable energy in her as well. And that's ultimately what inspired Amy to start Aquaspark. Nobody was paying attention to the ocean. And you have this, this, this ocean scientist out there saying, hold on, we're, we're, we're killing our ocean and we need it. Our life depends on it, literally. And everyone was talking about kind of the green movement, Earth Day. The ocean was being completely left out, but she didn't stop at all. She was tireless and, and thankfully so, right? She just kept going. And I think it's, she just had such a clear vision of what had to happen and what we had to do. And she wasn't letting up. And, and I think when you're trying to make something that feels really big and impossible happen, 
that is the way to go. It's to kind of hone in on the vision of, of what can be and not let anything get in the way of it. Meeting Dr. Sylvia Earle in 2009, and it was in 2010 that you went on the Mission Blue Voyage, which is where you met your life partner and your work partner. Can you tell me about that experience, what Mission Blue was and, and what inspired you then to create Aquaspark, which is this investment fund for sustainable aquaculture? So, I mean, first of all, it was one of the kind of luckiest experiences of my life. I was on a boat in the Galapagos with a hundred really remarkable people, immersed in the most pristine, kind of beautiful waters, swimming with sea lions, um, and then spending your days hearing TED Talks um, about kind of the challenges the ocean was facing, etc. It, it was kind of a bond and a connection to the ocean um, like no other. I mean, we used to laugh and say, if you want to change the world, just lock a bunch of doers on the boat for a week and and throw all the challenges at them. But I think also having them fall in love with the Galapagos and, and what like the gift of the ocean was also a, a key piece of it. I, I, it's interesting. There are, those hundred people are all really strongly still connected. I mean, a number of them are investors in Aquaspark. A number of them have sort of their own ocean initiatives. One of the things we did with Mission Blue was we launched six initiatives around kind of marine protection and anti-plastics movement, ocean education, and had champions agree to drive them forward and raised funding to support them. And I think, you know, over 30 million was raised to support these initiatives, and most of them are still going strong. Aquaspark was not one of the initiatives, but because I met my partner on the boat, it, it's actually, I mean... It definitely was something that was catalyzed by Sylvia and Mission Blue. Your partner, Mike Vellings, who's one of my other favorite people, I just think there must have been something at that time because I have to bring this up that you also went through a traumatic experience of having a brain tumor and an operation in 2010, 2011, uh, which was right after meeting both Sylvia Earle and Mike, your partner, I just, when I think of resilient human beings, I think of you. And was there something about going through this truly near-death experience that made you want to change things or start Aquaspark, this investment fund, or just kind of blow up your life in a way? You know, it's funny. I I actually, right at the end of Mission Blue, because the timing was that this voyage happened at the beginning of 2010, and it was the very end of 2010 that I found out about the brain tumor and in 2011 is when the kind of the real journey started. But at the end of Mission Blue, I had this moment of thinking, I am so lucky. Like all of these incredible people and things and projects in my life that I get to be a part of. And I really felt like the, the hard work of life was kind of behind me and it was time to, to sail for a little bit and enjoy it. And then this happened. And at first I was like, ah, damn, um, and then I realized like, well, it's a, it's a good place to have it happen, right? When you have all of these things that you feel connected to, that you feel you're a part of, a network of people that are like-minded, that you think the world of, a partner. Um, and, and, and the partnership was really in its early days when I found out about the brain tumor. In fact, I, my first thought was like, am I really going to bring Mike into this? But it also felt like a really special partnership. So I, I knew I had to. And he was kind of there and a part of it immediately and went through the whole thing for me as much as any other person could go through something like this with somebody. I think the experience of it going through that with him 
really helped me trust doing anything with that human. And so the idea of building something big and unknown kind of knew we could do it based on what we kind of accomplished and, and dealt with together. And then I think it was also just this sense of, uh, I was really hurting and it took a really long time to recover from the brain tumor. And way prematurely before recovering, I jumped into the, the kind of the founding of AquaSpark with Mike. And I think it was because that's how I, what I needed to do to help with my recovery as well. It felt like, again, an honor that I got to be a part of these conversations in this network. I wanted to kind of show up for that. And, and I wanted my life to continue to have meaning and have and have enjoyment and fun and not be something that I kind of shied away from and disappeared from. So I kind of kept forcing myself outward and, and was really lucky in a lot of ways that I had that that vision to, to walk toward because anyone with any kind of a brain injury will tell you you're not looking forward typically when you it's it's hard to look forward when when something like this happens but between Mike the network the urgency around the space and a really clear vision those were the kind of four factors that kept me going I mean you are just so capable of building community and I you know, full disclosure, I've had the privilege of knowing you for over 10 years now. So I remember you going through the brain tumor and that experience. And I didn't know you as well at the time, but afterwards when we kept talking and you said, I'm going to launch AquaSpark, it's going to be the first investment fund for sustainable aquaculture. I was just like, I'm in. I am sold. If this is a way to help save the ocean, then let's do it. Can you tell me, first off, what is AquaSpark and how does investing in sustainable aquaculture help us save the ocean and its species? Just the basics. Aquaculture is the farming of fish, shellfish, sea plants, seaweed, aquatic organisms. And it's the fastest growing food system. And it's something, especially 10 years ago, that a lot of people knew nothing about. And we came upon it and it was it was so big and it was projected to grow further. We're eating way more protein than ever. Population's growing, middle class is going. We want healthier protein. Fish is a really great choice. There are a lot of great sustainable kind of fishing operations out there trying to take fish from the wild better. Our kind of thinking is the ocean's a really perfect ecosystem that works because of all of the pieces in it working together. So the less you take from it, the less you disrupt it, the healthier it is. It felt like fish is a good option. We should be eating fish. We need to produce fish better than we are and have an option that's not wild caught. And then what we saw is that there were actually some really incredible farming operations out there farming fish in the way you'd want them to, except they were also selling, you know, to a really, really premium market in, say, San Francisco. So it wasn't really scalable and commercially viable. But what we also saw is that a lot of R&D in the decade before had led to kind of developing new feed ingredients that were more sustainable, new technologies were on the rise, and you actually had the potential to do aquaculture really well with a low footprint, completely transparently, resource efficient. And we got really excited about that. So we started to, well, we launched this fund 
that invest in aquaculture all along the value chain. So we invest in farming operations, but we also invest in all of the elements to make those farming operations sustainable, like new different types of feed ingredients, insects, microbes, technologies that say monitor uh, fish appetite and shrimp appetite and only feed when they're hungry, which makes for a way healthier fish or shrimp, but also much less pollution and much less resource waste. Also, of course, cost savings come with that. So we've invested in bacteriophagy so we can take the antibiotics out of aquaculture, which is another big challenge right now in aquaculture and are building this portfolio that also will act like an ecosystem can bringing all of the different elements of what we need to produce aquaculture from seed to plate as a global industry together, supporting these entrepreneurs and their solutions. Yeah, it's so, I mean, for the lay person, I think that aquaculture has gotten a really bad rap. Like people think of farmed fish as being problematic and we've talked about this, but with fish, there has been this whole myth built around if it's wild, it's better, which is actually problematic. And so, you know, what are some of the takeaways that you would want people to understand in terms of what environmentally sound aquaculture looks like? What should people be looking for? I mean, think about it. You want to farm a fish using as little kind of resources to produce that fish as possible with no or, you know, minimal pollution. You don't want to add lots of nasty chemicals. Um, let's not use antibiotics if we don't have to. We shouldn't have a runoff. I mean, there are lots of different things to kind of look for. And we do need to tell the story better. I mean, wild caught, again, you're taking kind of usually an important part of the ocean ecosystem out of the system. So that in itself is problematic. Also, you know, we, we don't know a lot about aquaculture at this point. The consumer doesn't, but we don't know much about wild caught at all. Even the kind of the transparency uh, projects now happening with wild caught, it basically tells you who caught it and on what boat it came from. But it doesn't tell you where the fish swam, what the fish ate, what the fish swam through. So there's a, a lot we don't know about wild caught as well. When you look at farming animals in general, the biggest part of the footprint is usually around feed. And aquaculture feed right now is pretty poor as well, generally. It uses a lot of soy. In a lot of cases, it uses wild-caught fish meal, feed farm fish. That's changing really rapidly. I mean, we, we haven't scaled alternative ingredients, but they've been developed and they're showing that they work. So when we get to the point when we can feed farmed fish, insects, microbes, algae, microalgaes at scale, the footprint goes down so far and the fish is, is healthy. It becomes a really incredible situation. And that's, we're, we've kind of invested or are investing in the improvement of aquaculture. So step by step, we're kind of going to get there. And, and you're definitely seeing a groundswell of activity and a momentum around improving aquaculture now that wasn't there 10 years ago, which is really exciting for us. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, we're in this pandemic right now and I have had to learn how to cook a lot more. And it's been so fun to order from Fresh Direct to get the Arctic char that you all have invested in. I would love, can you tell me about that? Just because this is something that I think is so easy for people to access and feel good about when they're cooking. This char is from a really incredible farm, Matorka. It's a farm in Iceland and it's these big, massive tanks built into volcanic rock. So the rock acts as this kind of natural filter and the water flows through it. So you don't need to treat the water. It's, it's treated by volcanic rock. 
these tanks have this kind of constant current. So fish aren't moving a lot. They're moving, but not using a lot of energy. So that makes them really efficient at converting food. So they can farm a kilo of char for around a kilo of feed, which is really good in, in the production of animal protein. It's geothermal powered because it's Iceland. I mean, it's kind of like everything you want to look at, look for, for... It's like the ideal it's, fish. <laughs> it, and it's a delicious, delicious fish. It's actually, um, I mean, it's being sold at Nobu, uh, Fresh Direct, you mentioned it. It's a really delicious fish. Yeah, no, it's definitely gotten me through. I also, I have to talk about how you approach investments because I, I just want to hear about how you think about the companies that you bring into your portfolio. Because I think one of the distinguishing elements of what you do is that you look not just about their environmental practices, but also their human rights practices and how they treat members of their own team, how they pay people. What is your ethos there in terms of this holistic approach to sustainability and investing? Well, it's kind of a multi-part answer. One, so in general, I mentioned our ecosystem portfolio we look for companies that are going to kind of work within the ecosystem. So we want them to be collaborative, open, willing to coordinate and uh, cooperate with other companies and with other partners. We think first and kind of foremost, we really need to think of the future of aquaculture as one that is connected. In, in kind of signing them up and signing all the companies up, they sign a shared values manifesto. So it, it lays that out, but it also lays out our kind of sustainability criteria around things like replacing wild caught fish meal in your farm. And if you're not going to do it now, we're going to get on a path with you to do it. And then the third thing is just we actually think of it as just kind of common sense terms around how you treat employees, that you pay people living wages that, uh, you know, obviously that you you don't work with anything connected to slavery, which in, in aquaculture, actually, as that came out, I don't know if it was a decade or so ago on a pretty public scale, there's quite a bit of slavery, especially regarding kind of fish meal in, in the shrimp industry. And uh, that you become a part of your community, that you share your story. I, I mean, I think what I think that the real thing, too, is I wasn't an investor before this. And, and my, Mike, my partner, though he was an investor, he wasn't a fund manager. He's never ran a fund, which gave us a lot of freedom to kind of figure things out along the way. And I, you know, originally when we launched, I was really, really excited about disrupting aquaculture and kind of investing in sustainability and all of those other things we've talked about. But the more and more experience I get with investing, I also realize that we're changing the way you support growth and support kind of scaling of solutions. We're long-term investors. We really want to be there with the company as they kind of grow to their ultimate vision. We're not looking for a quick exit. We are really active investors. We want to uh, work closely with the company and add value wherever we can. And and we understand that change is, is really hard. It As you kind of see with with politics today, it feels like it doesn't even happen at times. It happens in such tiny, tiny incremental steps. And then all of a sudden it does happen. All of a sudden everything kind of comes together and adds up and it's like, whoosh. But to be uh, an entrepreneur out there trying to build a company that is different to doing something that hasn't been done before, you need a lot of support and understanding and connections. And, and so we also want to be kind of understanding supportive investors. 
I think that that's one of the most notable things. It's this, even within your portfolio, there is community that you actively want to connect people in a way that feels very familial, but with this eye towards growth and that you want to make change. And it's also something that you did when you were running the TED Prize. It's how you approach everything. Like, what is the drive in you to do that? It's more fun. It, it feels better and more meaningful to build that way, to build together. You're kind of plugging in the holes and you get there faster. You know, I learned so much with the TED Prize when a lot of kind of different uh, experiences, different ways of thinking came together to tackle a solution and realized how much further you get when you bring kind of different perspectives together to force them to kind of figure something out. And, and that's what aquaculture needs and that's what we're doing. But I mean, too, with aquaculture, we thought that part of what was really wrong is that there was a lack of coordination. Um, it felt like all of these siloed uh, different markets and different operations in different markets that weren't sharing knowledge, they were actually putting walls up so that nobody could see what they were doing. And it was kind of one of the big challenges the industry faced. So we actually intentionally wanted to connect and build a more kind of collaborative portfolio system. You know, early on, because I don't think I quite realized the, the value of that piece of what we were doing. And early on, one of our Norwegian operations and in Norway, as you know, have really long, dark winters. And I was talking to one of the entrepreneurs who looked really bleak. And um, needless to say, basically, he later kind of responded to me with letting me know that uh, being in Norway, where and at the time, and it's changed a little bit, but at the time, sustainability wasn't always really valued in the same way, like really true work hard to, to make things sustainable, sustainability. You felt kind of lonely and had lots of days in the winter of why am I doing this? And just the, just the recognition of the fact that there were all these other groups and people that were not only trying to do something similar, but, but that cared about what they were doing was enough to kind of keep going. And, and you forget that we need that, especially if you're someone that lives within a network and it feels like networks are just kind of natural and everywhere, they're, they're not. Um, and they especially haven't been there in sustainable aquaculture. They're being developed and are there more and more now. But that network effect of knowing you're not in it alone is powerful. Yeah, there's something about both community and joy in doing this hard work. You clearly have so much joy. All, all the other guests on this show who we've spoken to, I think, derive incredible joy from making progress and from advancing sustainability. And that's something that's just so clear in how you approach things. Well, going back to kind of the trauma and the, the health stuff and the hard stuff, I mean, for a big part of Aquaspark, uh, I mean, a really big part, it was a, a hard push to push through kind of pain and discomfort and whatever we, I was dealing with. There has to be a number of reasons. But I mean, if you're not enjoying it, why do you show up every day? Yes, the, the, the change you're trying to make and, and because you're supporting all of these incredible entrepreneurs and all of the other stuff as well. And that has to give you joy, but it, it's the big picture that has to come together. I can't believe we're wrapping up because I just, I, I need to ask you two more questions. One, like, do you feel hopeful about the state of the ocean and sustainability? Like, is there an optimism right now at all? I hope so. You know, in, in my bubble of kind of sustainable aquaculture and ocean people that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, I'm wildly optimistic. You know, we work with some of the most badass entrepreneurs 
imaginable. Like they're out there uh, working to make change and do something that's different. And they're, they're dependable, they're dedicated, they're fun. Like they give me optimism every day. And then sometimes I go to a regular investing conference and I think, Jesus, we have a long way to go. But in general, there are so many smart, dedicated people kind of trying to work together in this space to make things better uh, that I do believe we're going to get there. Um, But it's a really nice viewpoint from inside that bubble too. At the end of our episodes, we always ask people, what have you had enough of? What do you want to leave behind? And also, like, what is the moment when you feel like you have enough, like when you're in this good place and sensation of feeling complete? So first one's easy. I have had enough with people telling me that this isn't the way things are done, with people telling me what kind of a world it is. I get it. Like some of our systems are there for a reason, but we can all kind of be in agreement that a lot of what we're doing and how we're doing it is broken right now. Preach. I'm with you. And on the positive note, like in what moment do you feel like you have enough? You know, I spend a lot of my time, we're kind of based mostly in the Netherlands. And so we bike a lot. We have these three kids and we have a bicycle built for five. And sometimes we'll just get on the bicycle and we'll bike a hundred kilometers to the shore. You can't go anywhere. You can talk a little bit, but mostly... You just look at the nature around you and you sing. And it's like in that moment, it's really it's really all I need forever. It's kind of got us through the lockdown once we were allowed to leave our house. We just biked and it didn't matter that nowhere was open. We just biked and biked and biked. And I I feel like I could kind of be on that bike forever. I want to go on that bike. I could talk to you forever and I'm just... I mean, you know how much I adore and respect and appreciate you. And you were our number one client, our first client who took a chance on working with us when we didn't even have an agency, really. So thank you for letting me be part of your last decade plus and for teaching me more about aquaculture than I ever thought I would know. I ruin everyone's sushi dinners. Thank <laughs> as you. As you should, as you should. <laughs> Listen, thank you for, um, I mean, giving us the support. And we, we talked about community and connection. Like to me, when really unbelievably smart, incredible people that you look up to believe in you and believe in what you're doing, like that's how confidence is created. And I think we both launched our company at the same time and we both get, like gave each other the confidence and... I mean, I love what you've built and that you guys are doing these podcasts now. Sorry, not to turn this into a love fest, but I think it's important to mention that like that's the support that we've been able to give each other does instill confidence in a way that allows you to do. I totally agree. And I am so happy that we have this in existence for posterity's sake. And so people can hear more about you because you're fucking awesome. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Amy is truly one of the most inspiring people that I've ever met for so many different reasons. And I just love that she's forged this path in an industry that was so unknown to so many people and has been wildly successful at it. And it also just reminds me of the conversation that we had with Esha last week talking about the need for nuance around sustainability and the topics around sustainability. Because at the beginning of Amy's journey 
as the founder of this investment fund, I mean, so much of the rhetoric, the national, international rhetoric was around how bad fish farming is without any real look into whether that's true or not. Certainly there are some bad actors and we all know that, but they sort of took precedence over people who were trying to get things right and do things better. And I think it's just a a good reminder that this conversation is nuanced. When we're talking to people in these spaces, it's not about just sort of unabashedly following a trend because everybody else is saying that that's the way it should be, but it's really about doing the work and understanding what it takes to create long-term solutions to, in this case, you know, keep our oceans healthy. Yeah. And I think what you're saying too, this nuanced conversation of why do we always think wild caught fish is better than farmed fish? And I know that when we go out to restaurants, we're like, oh, I'm going to order this because it's not farmed. It's wild caught. But one of the things she points out, we need to recognize with fish, you know where it was caught, maybe. And that's about it. You don't know where it swam through. You don't know where it's been. You don't know how people were treated along the supply chain. So actually with fish farming, there's a far greater amount of control over all of the different elements. Clean water, if you're able to be getting it from a clean fish farm, which is what we're talking about, no antibiotics, no plastic. And this is where we have to change the conversation. And I will say a shit ton of money has been poured into making us think that wild caught is better. There is an entire marketing arm devoted to this and we need to have that conversation and then really look at where our fish is coming from. Yeah, I think the lesson here is to be a critical thinker and to always challenge when we hear rhetoric that says one thing is good and something else is bad in conversations around sustainability because it is not always so black and white. And it's really important to understand that gray area because, you know, on the heels of this conversation, what's really clear is that there are some fish farms that are doing much better, much cleaner, much healthier for the environment than wild caught fish. And yet that gets lost in the conversation if we're just trying to say X is right and Y is wrong. Uh, And I think all of this harkens back to our obsession with quick fixes, which as we've learned from the conversations we've had on this podcast, are not the solutions to being more sustainable. This is about investing in long-term solutions, which is sometimes hard to be patient for those results, but ultimately ends up making real change. Part of Amy's work has been making sure that people have access to fish that is sustainably farmed. One of their investments is in Matorka, which is an Icelandic Arctic char farm. And we actually can order this on Fresh Direct and have it delivered to our homes. So if you want to try Arctic char that was powered by geothermal energy and has no antibiotics in it and is in this fresh water that is constantly moving, so super healthy, you can order it. So get the Icelandic Arctic char from Fresh Direct. And, and that's just like a really easy thing and way we have access to, to healthy fish. Yeah. When we talk about environmental sustainability and having clean fish in our oceans, it's not just about keeping the ocean safe and clean and protected. It's also about thinking about the cultures and people around the world who rely on seafood as the primary staple of their diets and ensuring that they still have access to that in the years to come. Thanks for listening to Enough. 
As always, you can find links to Amy's work, how to order Arctic char on Fresh Direct, and of course, the Enough newsletter launching tomorrow in our show notes. Enough is a podcast from Number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Natalie Brennan and Sophie Bridges. Pineapple's executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original composition by Hannes Brown.